The scripture passage on which the teaching is based this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. I think it's in your pew Bibles. Look, follow along in your pew Bibles. We have 8, 20, 20 21, something like that. <clears throat> Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised." And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I have a dear friend uh, who is a minister who, for re reasons that will become readily apparent, I'll not mention his name. But it's been a little over 15 years since he told me about his most embarrassing moment. Much too long, or long of a story to tell you in this setting, but suffice it to say, my friend returned home after just a crushingly exhausting trip with family, only to find that he had lost his latest battle, ongoing battle, with one of his household appliances. Regardless of what it was, but when he found out that it had failed yet again, he snapped. And when I say snapped, I mean that in the midst of his fatigue, he unleashed a fountain of profanity that even he was not aware where it came from. Uh, it reminds me of that quote from, from the Christmas uh, story, the Christmas movie, um, that he wove a tapestry of obscenity that as far as we know is still hanging in space over Lake Michigan. <clears throat> well, that break was of course bad enough as it was, but to compound the matter, he inadvertently did it while a renowned Bible teacher and seminary professor was standing just outside of his view. Cringeworthy, for sure. But what's really interesting about that story, and you better believe it's been told time and time again among his close friends, it actually had the opposite effect of what he thought that it would. You see, there was so much shame and embarrassment that he experienced from the mistake that he, he just shuddered at the thought that anyone would find out. But as he told the story, the exact opposite happened. Rather than alienate him, alienating him, it really began to draw people to him. It made him all that much more endearing and lovable, which is strange, right? But isn't it also true that the people that we come to love the most um, are often the ones who fail the most spectacularly, but then are able to own it afterwards? And look, I mentioned that story to say that I, I'm finally ready to crown uh, the Apostle Peter as officially my favorite disciple. 
Uh, Peter's so passionate, uh, he's so expressive, he's so emotional, <laughs> but he's also totally impetuous. He acts before he thinks almost all the time. You know, think about it. I mean, he fails when he tries to walk on water with Jesus. Uh, we're going to learn in January how he speaks out of turn when Jesus is, is transfigured. Uh, he refuses to let Jesus wash his feet at the Last Supper. He's so dramatic and even violent when they come to arrest Jesus. And of course, at that moment, he sticks his foot in his mouth, claiming, oh, he'll never deny Jesus, only hours before doing just that. My point is, is that Peter is this very multidimensional, complicated character, but I don't think that there's any story of Peter's buffoonery that can match the one that we have here. I mean, there's no doubt that there are many ways in which we could approach this passage this morning. Obviously, it's a passage about Jesus and the unveiling of his full divinity, of course. But am I the only one who finds Peter the most compelling character in the story? Um, and I've come to the conclusion after studying this passage to believe that in the life of Peter, you have one of the most compelling personalities in the entire New Testament. And this story, like my friend, when we see Peter at his most embarrassing, I think we're most drawn to both his courage and his humility, which, by the way, are two attributes that we really don't know how to put together in our own personalities, but that this passage leads us into. So let's look at it through three lenses. I want to see, first of all, Peter's confession. I want to see, second of all, his affirmation. And then finally, his failure. We want to look at that straightforward. First of all, look at his confession. It opens up with Jesus posting a question to his disciples about what the word on the street is when it comes to who he is. After some speculation and back and forth, Peter's the one who officially uncorks it there in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. What he's saying is, is that you are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are the one that we are going to follow into salvation. Okay, quick lesson here for a second. The word Christ that Peter, that Peter is using there is the Greek word that means anointed one. It was what the Greeks used to translate a Hebrew word called Mashiach, from which we get the word Messiah. <clears throat> but throughout the Old Testament, what you find is God's people are waiting for someone. They're waiting for someone to save them, someone who was part, we find out, of King David's lineage. So the point Peter is saying could not be more dramatic than this. Because what Peter is doing is he's laying the weight of like 2,000 years of Jewish expectation on the man sitting in front of him. Commentator Michael Green explains that this is actually the first time in which anyone directly addresses Jesus as Messiah in Matthew. I mean, there were plenty of people that were following Jesus who thought he was unique in lots of ways and speculated about it. <clears throat> You'll remember just a couple of weeks ago when we were studying King Herod's reaction to Jesus that they began to associate him with certain end-time figures, people like Jeremiah and Elijah, uh, even John the Baptist we found. <clears throat> but what Peter is saying is simply this. He's like, no, Jesus, you, we have found in you the final and full self-disclosure of God himself. Uh, Peter was saying, Jesus, you are the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 that we studied actually in the spring, as I'm sure you remember. When it said, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a 
son. That's what Peter's drawing off of. And so Peter probably, his listeners would have heard echoes of Psalm chapter 2. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. In other words, Jesus, Peter is saying, this is the king. You are the king who really is the son of God most high. Again, leading uh, green to say, there literally was no higher title that Peter could have described to Jesus than this. Nothing in reference to Jesus. <clears throat> okay, so you and I are reading this passage and we're kind of like, man, you go, Pete. That's pretty impressive, man. Way to, way to crush the answer. You go, you go right to the head of the class. That's what we're thinking. And I don't think Jesus would necessarily disagree with you on that score, except for the fact that he responds to Peter's confession with a slightly different emphasis, doesn't he? Look at verse 17. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Oh, see, that's interesting. Because Jesus fully affirms Peter's answer. Yes, you got it all right. But he immediately needs for Peter to know, and of course, we're going to find out in just a moment why, that this insight of yours did not emerge from within your own creativity, Peter. No, no, no. This did not come because you're especially insightful, that you're equipped with some genuine wisdom, or maybe because you were totally yielded to God, uh, or maybe that you had a great quiet time this morning, or maybe that you've lived a perfectly obedient life up until this point. No. The insight that you just had about who I am was granted to you from my Father. Of course, the implication is pretty clear. Only God can reveal God to sinful human beings. We don't seek him, at least according to Romans chapter 3. No, human beings are a people who are, who are not wandering from guru to guru, you know, trying to make sense of life. But the Bible pictures us as people who are actively running away from God in our natural state. So if we are to be enlightened... The cause of it must be an act of condescension on God's part in order for us to know it. Again, from Michael Green, he says, no one can pierce through to Jesus' identity by his own cleverness. So even in the midst of a great triumph of revelation on Peter's part, Jesus is wont to tell Peter that it's all of grace. Every bit of it is only by grace. A lesson, by the way, that he would not, we're about to find out, listen to. But not before he gets assigned a massive role in the future of the church, which brings me to my second point about his affirmation. This is amazing. Look, Jesus uncorks a verse in verse 18 that, quite frankly, has probably had as much ink spilled on in the New Testament as any verse when he says this. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now look, how you interpret this verse uncovers one of the great divides between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics have long pointed to this verse as proof that Jesus specifically designated Peter to be, as they would say, the first among equals in a long successive line of popes who would serve as what they would refer to as the vicar of Christ. But of course, Protestant scholars have long insisted that that's reading way too much into Jesus' statement about Peter. And I think that that much is apparent. 
But in response to that, Protestants have sometimes insisted, well, the rock that Jesus is referring to is not, is not Peter himself as an individual, but it's actually what Peter just confessed. Does that make sense? That is it, is, it is his conviction that Jesus is the Messiah that will be the thing that builds the church. Um, and frankly, that interpretation, I think, at least has the benefit of being true. But I've actually come to believe that it, I'm not sure that it's necessarily paying attention to the grammar of the text. Because the way in which the Greek is phrased here, I think, clearly shows, at least I've come to be convinced, that Jesus really is talking about Peter himself as being the rock. And I'm not going to bore you with a technical explanation. And don't hear me saying that this is in support of the Roman Catholic position. I'm simply saying that the best of commentators, my favorite on this one was by a guy named R.T. French, I think in the Tyndale commentary series, where he says, look, when Jesus declares Peter to be the rock, he's referring to the place of priority that Peter was going to take in the New Testament church. Does that make sense? And, and this is exactly what you see throughout the rest of the, uh, the gospel. You find that as the church begins to build, they keep looking to Peter. Peter is the first one to defend Jesus when the people come to arrest him. Peter and John are the first ones to the tomb to verify that Jesus had actually been raised from the dead. Not only that, in Acts chapter 2, during the Pentecost, Peter is the one who preaches the first sermon. In other words, what Jesus is talking about is that Peter was clearly going to be the leader of the disciples. Now, before you take that too far, what I think is fascinating is the way in which the disciples and apostles would talk about the church in subsequent passages. And by the way, nowhere against the Catholic position here do we see the apostles heralding Peter as the head of the church in any way. Actually, quite the contrary. You could take a sample uh, verse in Ephesians 2, verse 20, where he, Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Did you catch that? That was big. Because everywhere the Bible affirms that Jesus is the stone. But the role of these disciples was therefore to lay a foundation to make it ready to launch the church. Okay, why am I going into all this? Well, because the unique role of these early apostles, specifically commissioned by Jesus to do so, was therefore to express the full intent of what Jesus was and what his will was for the church. So much so that when these men died out over the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years, the early church recognized that everything that needed to be said about Jesus had already been said. That is, Jesus was the full revelation of God. And after these apostles, having been specifically and directly commissioned by Jesus to do so, after they wrote these things down, it was complete. And of course, history shows us it only took about 200 years more for the church to compile these writings into a common testimony that you and I now refer to as the New Testament. Okay? So follow the logic then. When Jesus declares Peter, the rock, to be the head of those who would be the foundation of the church, what he was envisioning was these men specifically, by the way, with the exception of Paul, who, to whom he would appear in glorified uh, form later on in, um, in Acts chapter 9, 
to be the ones to complete the revelation of God in the Bible. Jesus is commissioning the apostles in these verses to finish the Bible. Okay, why am I going on with this? Well, because I just don't think you can go that long without reminding people that the New Testament and Old Testament that you have open in front of you this morning is all you need. Jesus intended it that way. But we seem just bound and determined in the last 2,000 years to try to search for other sources to know God. We search for all kinds of things. But you do not need, as Mormons would argue, an appearance of Jesus to Joseph Smith in the 19th century to give you God's view on modern man. You don't need that. You don't even need, I would argue, to search out corroborating archaeological evidence in order to prove these texts' claims, even though, by the way, there's a mountain of that particular evidence. Not only that, I can get more subtle. You also are not in need of rather special messages from God, you know, communicated through inward impressions of spiritual insight. No, everything that you need to know about God and life and salvation and guidance can be found within the pages of this book. And Jesus, in our passage, chose these men with Peter as their leader to pour out the reinforced concrete of a foundation so that the home that God is building could never be shaken. That's what's being said here. So that's the affirmation. Finally, though, what I think is the more interesting part of this story, and that is Peter's failure. Because again, you know, if we ended the sermon right here, you'd be tempted to walk out thinking, wow, I mean, Peter, that guy's a big deal. But I doubt that Peter would have endeared himself to us as much and probably wouldn't explain why he's become my favorite. Because Peter's my favorite, though, because of the scathing rebuke that Jesus delivers him right after all this happens. Think about this for a second. Jesus goes along and he's like, okay, you got it right. Now, let me explain to you what that means. Yes, Messiah. But I'm about to fill that in with what you don't expect. And what they don't expect is for Jesus to say, yes, I'm about to suffer. I'm about to suffer at the hands of a lot of terrible people, and it's actually going to lead to my death. But you know what? I'm going to rise again from the dead. Something that we also know in other passages, they had no idea what he was talking about, raising from the dead. So he starts talking this way, and Peter is immediately offended by what Jesus says. It's like, no, 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 no. And he pulls him aside. Can you imagine? Jesus, can I see you for a second? Over here. <laughs> and Jesus turns around, and it's kind of like, Stop. Satan. This is what's crazy about this, right? There is not one place in the rest of the Gospels where Jesus says anything even close to as, as excoriating as this particular line. It's, it's not quite a full-blown curse, but to call someone Satan? So here's my question, and Brian mentioned it in the announcements this morning as we anticipate this. How can Peter be blessed and Satan in the same conversation. Okay, before we get to answer that question, let, let's see if we can figure out exactly why Jesus is so upset. Remember, Peter had just said, Jesus, you are the way of salvation, which, which I think ought to alert us to something very important. What, what Jesus is saying is, is you are not a Christian this morning if you do not believe what Peter just said about Jesus. That much is clear. That is the thing that one must believe. It's that important. 
But of course, as soon as Jesus starts talking in verse 21 about what following Jesus looks like, Peter shows that what he's missed is something very profound about Jesus' mission. I was really helped by a commentator by the name of Rodney Reeves who, who said this. He said, so when Peter tries to convince Jesus that this shall never happen to you, Jesus recognizes Satan's voice because he was using the same old ploy. In essence, he was saying, God won't let bad things happen to his children. Okay, what's Reeves talking about? He's talking about the temptation that Jesus went through in the early portions of the gospel where Satan comes to him and offers him all these temptations. And remember what the devil says to him in the last temptation? He goes, look, Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you everything. And you can do it without all of this suffering that you're planning on. Just fall down and worship me. And that's it. And Jesus recognizes in Peter's talking, what Peter is saying is essentially this. Come on, Jesus. When people come to you, that means the end of their suffering right? Look, your life, your eventual death on the cross, that's going to mean that you won't have, that people, your people, your followers will never have to suffer themselves. Jesus' goal is coming to keep you from suffering. And not only that, he's probably going to keep you ever from failing again. When you come to Christ, you're going to get better and better until you achieve a Christian, I don't know, higher life or something like that. By the way, does that sound familiar? <laughs> I grew up with some of it. But here's what Jesus is saying. That is not my voice. That is the devil's voice. Which, by the way, likely explains why Jesus doesn't want his disciples to go out and tell people that he's the Messiah. Because he knows that they don't get it yet. <laughs> you're, you're, you're misunderstanding me terribly. But I can't overstate how key of an insight this is for Christians. I mean, think, about, think back for just a moment, really. Wh what did you bring by way of expectations, when you gave your life to Christ, however you describe it, right? When you accepted him as your, as your savior, or, or maybe you, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe something else in terms of how you describe it. You, you surrendered to him or whatever. <clears throat> My guess is you probably found yourself at a low point, maybe a spiritual crisis of some sort, and your conscience told you rightly, maybe it was in the midst of a sermon, maybe some other means, that you needed to give your life to him. Isn't it so natural to think to yourself, ha, oh, wonderful, bad times ended. Because clearly I was going through what I was going through because God was mad at me. But now that I've prayed this prayer, everything's cool. And so no more suffering. We're all done with that, right? Jesus died on the cross to take my suffering away. And so therefore I can look forward to a life that's going to be marked by going on from strength to strength. It's kind of natural, don't you think? But I, but, I, but I love sort of getting into conversation with the oldest believing people in the room. I'm not going to point you out because <clears throat> I'm one of you. Did you ever think to yourself, you know, I just kind of thought that I'd be holier by now. I thought I'd be better. Why is it that so many Christians report as they age that, it, that it's my weaknesses that are more pronounced? I mean, honestly, you look back and you realize I got a rap sheet full of failures some of them public, some of them private. And that zeal, you know, that I had, you know, started, that started this whole journey, it just seems to wane. Well, is that because they've lost their faith? Is that how you would advise them? Maybe because they've grown unfaithful in their old age? I actually argue no. 
Because Jesus is going to go on to say in these verses after ours that if you want to follow him, you're going to have to deny yourself. That's a whole other sermon. But he also says you're going to have to take up your cross. Hmm. Which means I have to begin to own and take on suffering as a badge of faithfulness. And what that means is that what appears to be a contradiction in Peter's life, (laughs) being blessed and Satan at the same time, is actually the defining identity of every Christian this side of heaven. It led the reformer Martin Luther to say uh, in Latin that the Christian was um, simul iustus et peccator, simultaneously just and sinful. And those two things are true at the same time. And yet it's so difficult for us to enter into an identity that looks like that because we get so confused. How can this be? Tim Keller actually says it's the mark of immaturity to think that way. Look what he says in one of his uh, books. He says it's the mark of immaturity to think that in the first three, four, five years after you become a Christian that you're going to feel stronger and stronger. That's ridiculous. Because if you're getting the strength of a strong identity in which you really see who you are, you'll be feeling weaker and weaker. Not that you'll actually be getting weaker and weaker. Not that you'll actually be getting worse and worse. But you'll be seeing more of your sin. You see the point. You know what this, this is what's interesting. Do you know what that new identity purchases for you? That new way of seeing yourself? You find for yourself that you get the ability and the freedom to admit that you did dumb stuff. That's the gift. You get the freedom not to hide the real you anymore. You are granted the freedom to take off the masks that we wear, which by the way are doing nothing but alienating ourselves from each other. And I realize what a lot of us say, we say to ourselves, well, you know, Les, I mean, this was Peter before Pentecost. I mean, after Pentecost, he got the Holy Spirit. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He was so much better after that. Nope. Go to Galatians 2, (laughs) where the Apostle Peter, I'm not making this up, read it. The Apostle Peter has to confront, excuse me, Apostle Paul has to confront Peter on his racism. It's incredibly embarrassing. He's serving the Jewish widows more than the Gentile widows. Paul has to get up in his face about it. No, 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 no. (laughs) He's not getting better in that regard. But here's the deal. When we see those continued failures, I think that endears him to us. And frankly, it's what endears us to each other. Think about the people that you're closest to right now. And I will bet my last dollar that it's the people who have not been afraid to admit their failures to you. You saw people fail spectacularly and suddenly you thought to yourself, oh, you really are down on my level. Well, I can relate to you now. Let me close with this one simple illustrative thought. (laughs) How do we know this story about Peter? How embarrassing, right? What a terrible thing to say about him. You can imagine the apostles sort of stomping around in the early, early first century and thinking to themselves, now look, let's, let's dial it back a little bit. I don't want to go back to that whole Jesus calling me Satan thing. How do we know these stories happen? You ready for this? They were the ones that told them. We only know about these stories is because the disciples and the apostles were telling these stories Everywhere you go, you get them going from place to place talking about how much they didn't get it and how much they still didn't get it. They did not walk around telling people about the victorious Christian life. They did not march through Palestine telling them how to earn their best life now. 
No. They said, boy, you want to talk about, you want to talk about an idiot? Wait till you hear this one. And they wrote it down so that no one would forget it. Look, and they talked about how Jesus redeemed them in the midst of their failures, not because they were becoming more faithful and better, but because Jesus was more faithful and better. That was what was leading them through that. So yeah, Peter's my favorite. (laughs) He's my favorite because, and since it's Christmas season, I think Peter exemplifies the spirit of Christmas. Is what Brian was saying during the confession. You know, Jesus becoming man, becoming a baby, was not a compliment. You've heard me say that before. And Christmas means that you and I were so helpless and so hopeless that God himself had to come down in order to save us. And what happens is, is when we begin to take that truth into our lives, we begin to hang out with guys like Peter, it begins to transform us into humble people. And humble people, they know how to help each other. Humble people are the ones who, they know how to be real with one another. And in turn, humble people are the ones who know that that is what endears us together. And suddenly you're creating a, you're creating a body. <laughs> or what Jesus says, a building. A building that he calls the church. That's our essential identity. But who wants to be a part of that? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you lead us into it? Because... We learned from Peter that we would not come up with this on our own. We would not see this insight by our own creativity. But you know, you promised your spirit would inhabit the preaching of your word and the praise that we offer in song. And so if your spirit would come to this place and draw all men to yourself, we would be most grateful, especially for that soul who's looking back and realizing that they misunderstood. They didn't know what it meant to follow you as Messiah. But would you hold out joy, (laughs) hold out relief, that comes from removing masks, that comes from being real, that comes from owning, what, owning what, we, what our problem is. We hope you don't have to call us Satan in the process, but the fact that you did for Peter means that we can be free to admit where we are. Would you help us to do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.